Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And it's a sad day on the podcast today because friend of the pod, one of our first supporters, one of just, you know, the greatest people alive, Liz Super Truss. fan. I mean, she's been... Super you know, fan. Really one of her earliest fan. Patreons followed us to Substack, no questions asked. You know, just a really good gal. Liz Truss has resigned from the prime ministership. So we're, we're going to be maybe a little low energy today just because, you know, this doesn't bode well for the UK, Europe, or even the world. So Derek, why don't we start by explaining why and what happened to our friend Liz? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, Liz Truss uh, has indeed resigned after, uh, I believe, 45 days, 44, 45 days on the job. Uh, she becomes the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Uh, she's nowhere close to the shortest serving world leader. That's Pedro Lascarain in Mexico, who served about 45 minutes as president in 1913. That's one of my favorite bits of historical trivia. But, uh, yes, she has resigned uh, in the wake of uh, or in the face of a a growing mutiny within the Conservative Party. They didn't really have a mechanism to get rid of her because she's so new on the job. You get a certain amount of grace time before you can be um, challenged in a leadership vote or a no-confidence vote. But nevertheless, her position uh, seemed to be completely untenable uh, at this point. And so... Uh, somewhat surprisingly, I guess she saw the writing on the wall and decided to step down. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. The cause for this goes back to... back maybe three, four weeks now, uh, to the unveiling of her mini budget, uh, which uh, was meant to be a very Thatcherite document that uh, declared uh, big corporate and upper class tax cuts. Uh, It set out a plan for increased public spending in terms of uh, energy subsidies. Uh, All of this, of course, to be financed uh, through deficit spending which sent the bond market into a complete tailspin. Uh, The British pound declined in value, hit, uh, I think at one point, parity almost with the dollar. It's picked back up a little bit since then. Uh, But really was just not well received uh, by the market. She's then since been tagged, you know, with sort of the, uh, you know, sort of a dysfunctional label. She's walked back parts of that budget. She fired her chancellor of the exchequer, her newly appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, just on Monday basically walked back all the rest of her uh, mini-budget, which is humiliating, you know, humiliation for Prime Minister um, to have this, uh, you know, person who's supposedly working for you step in and act like the adult in the room and and, uh, uh, put the kibosh on all of your economic plans. The final blows came on Wednesday. One involved the resignation of UK Home Secretary Suella Braverman, which didn't have anything to do with the budget or the you know kind of tumult swirling about trust. Uh, she apparently breached security rules by sending an official document through personal email, uh, but it did add to the sense that you know things are coming apart at the seams. Uh, and she also, in her resignation letter, uh, fired off a little shot uh, at 
uh, trust, saying she had concerns about the direction of her government. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's basically it. It's 45 days. She couldn't possibly have done that much, but she became the lowest polling, uh, you know, in terms of public approval rating, the lowest polling prime minister on record. Uh, polls of, you know, kind of general, generic election polls were showing uh, labor leading uh, the conservatives by margins that I, I don't think have been seen in like 70 years in some cases. I mean, you know, we're talking about 15 points and up uh, through really no fault of labor, just kind of watching the the conservatives fall apart. So uh, yeah, politically, uh, you know, just within the party, I don't think there was any uh, real appetite for her to continue on very much longer in the job. Also on Wednesday, I should say they, they, called a vote on a fracking bill that Truss's office decided, kind of last minute it sounds like, would be a confidence vote in the government. So in other words, if it had failed, uh, the government would have collapsed. The government would have fallen. A lot of Tory MPs didn't seem to, to care for this sudden, you know, kind of late addition to the agenda. Uh, and to make matters, just to get, you know, completely shambolic about it, Truss herself apparently didn't even vote. <laughs> in this conference vote against her government. So things were just a complete mess. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was was uh, uh, the writing was on the wall and, and she's gone now. Uh, so, Derek, now that Liz has resigned, uh, who's looking to take her place? Uh, what could we expect here? Uh, Rishi Sunak, who was the, the made it into the final round of the vote to replace Johnson with trust and lost to trust. Uh, will be running, uh, I assume. Uh, Penny Mordaunt, who was, I think, the third place finisher in that contest um, and is currently the uh, conservatives' floor leader in the House of Commons, is also likely to run. Hunt, the, the chancellor of the exchequer, who seems to have the uh, both public appeal and charisma of a box of grape nuts, uh, is also probably going to run. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because the, the leaders, the last leadership contest to replace Johnson, um, you know, Sunak won all the votes, uh, up to the last round, which were taken by, uh, MPs, just MPs, you know, people serving in the, in the parliament. Uh, it was the final vote where the party membership, uh, voted en masse, where they decided they, they preferred trust over Sunak. I think part of the reason trust is standing in, in, uh, the commons hasn't been so, so hot is because a lot of the MPs in the the party didn't actually want her to be uh, prime minister. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I think if Boris gets to the the general uh, membership round, I think it's almost certain that he will return as prime minister. He'll return as party leader and prime minister. Um, the problem may be getting there. I mean, it's not that long ago that these people voted or, or pushed him out, basically, you know, forced him to leave in lieu of a, a, a leadership a challenge. Uh, so I don't know how willing they're going to be to to go back on that so quickly. On the other hand, uh, you know, their polling was a lot better when Boris was around. So maybe they'll just see that as a basic political calculation and do what's needed to save their skins. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think Sunak is a contender. Boris obviously is a contender. I don't know about the rest of them. Penny Mordaunt supposedly fairly popular in the party, but, um, you know, didn't make it to the final round last time. We'll see. So, Derek, now let's stay, I guess, broadly in Europe and talk about EU sanctions on Iran. Uh, yeah, interestingly, this week, the EU has uh, done a couple of rounds of sanctions uh, on Iran. Uh, the first one came 
uh, on Monday uh, related to the ongoing protests over Masa Amini's death uh, in custody in the custody of Iranian morality police. Uh, the EU sanctioned the morality police force, a couple of that institution's senior officials, a number of other law enforcement related individuals and entities, uh, including Information Minister Issa Zaripour, uh, who was blacklisted for essentially uh, throttling internet access to try to undermine the protests. The rest of them were sanctioned for, um, you know, uh, allegations, uh, you know, uh, of brutality against the protesters, which I think are uh, somewhat borne out in, in what we've seen. But, um, you know, that's that's been the, uh, the rationale. Now, the second round uh, of sanctions, which uh, is just coming out officially uh, on Thursday as we're kind of recording this, uh, has to do with Iran's weapon sales to Russia, uh, material that's being used in Ukraine. Um, the Iranians have uh, been selling drones uh, to Russia. There is, There have been uh, reports that they're expanding beyond drones, that they're going to sell missiles and other uh, materials to the Russian military. Those drones, uh, what are called the Shahed 136, they're kind of co swarming kamikaze type drones, uh, appear to be getting used in Ukraine. Now, you know, the Russian military denies that it's using Iranian drones in Ukraine. And Iran denies that their uh, drones are being used or, or that they have anything to do with it. Really, they say, you know, kind of wash their hands of it. We sell it and the Russians do whatever they want with it. Uh, but by all accounts, I mean, you know, video evidence, photographic evidence uh, shows pretty clear resemblance between the wreckage of these things, which admittedly have Russian markings on them, uh, and the design of these Iranian drones. So it seems fairly likely that these are being used. Um, and so the EU is sanctioning... Uh, elements of Iran's defense industry, elements of its aerospace industry. Uh, I don't have all the details on this because I say that, as I say, the, the sanctions are only just, have only just been officially released uh, today as we're doing this. So, but, but that's, uh, yeah, that's basically somehow Iran has become, you know, has found itself at the center of the Ukraine war, uh, which is uh, a little bit strange, but I guess not terribly surprising. Speaking of, why don't we talk about Ukraine? Yeah, so the big development here, I would say, over the last week is uh, took place on Wednesday when Vladimir Putin declared martial law in the four provinces of Ukraine that he his government uh, recently annexed or claimed to annex uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. Uh, he also declared an economic mobilization, which is a step that's basically just shy of martial law. Uh, in eight Russian provinces bordering Ukraine. I say Russian provinces, to be clear, that includes Crimea, which as far as the international community is concerned, uh, is still Ukrainian. Uh, he also authorized some special security powers to be uh, given to the governors of all of Russia's regions, essentially putting the whole country a little bit closer to something like a total war footing, uh, which is something that conservative, kind of hawkish um uh, critics of, of the way Putin has been conducting the war so far uh, have been calling for, they've been demanding, you know, total mobilization. This is not that, but it's a, it's a step along the way. And it's, uh, I think, you know, as close as you'll get to an acknowledgement from uh, Putin himself that, that the things are not going uh, as well as he may have hoped. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, the main story this week has been uh, Russian bombardments of Ukrainian 
infrastructure, mostly power infrastructure. The country's starting to to see some uh, extended blackouts uh, in some places. Uh, water infrastructure as well, some heating infrastructure, and you know, as we're heading into winter, these things start to matter because you, you know, don't know how quickly you can repair them and if they're going to be destroyed again, and, and people are going to be sitting in the dark without heat uh, as winter approaches. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, said on Tuesday in his regular evening address that about a third of Ukraine's power plants have been. Uh, damaged or destroyed uh, in these bombardments, which have basically been, it's been over a week now. It's really started after the the Kerch Bridge uh, bombing by uh, the Ukrainians uh, that that the Russians rolled out this new campaign uh, against infrastructure. So that's, there hasn't been, I haven't seen much in the way of territorial changes. The Russians are claiming that they've um, kind of stood up the Ukrainian advance in Kherson. I, I can't say that that's true or not true. Um, they also claim to have seized a village in the eastern part of Kharkiv uh, Oblast, which would be the first uh, time since the Ukrainians pushed the Russians basically all the way out of Kharkiv uh, last month that that they would have clawed back any part of that territory. I haven't seen any confirmation of that claim either or any follow-up to suggest that this was you know any more than an isolated incident. So that's that's pretty much where things stand at this point. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's turn to Ethiopia. Uh, yeah, there's been a, a couple of developments uh, this week. One, uh, the Ethiopian military has seized control of three towns uh, in the Tigray region, which all lie kind of in a ring around uh, the capital, Makella. Uh, the most important of these is a town called Shira, which is in the northern part of Tigray, and it's unclear if the Ethiopians themselves seize it or their Eritrean uh, allies, probably more the latter than the former. That town or that city fell to the Ethiopians on Monday. Shirei, located around 90 miles northwest of Tigray's capital, Mikele, is one of the region's biggest towns. It hosts tens of thousands of people who were displaced from other areas. The TPLF acknowledged pulling out, but then there's the, there, there were reports on Tuesday of two other towns uh, to the south of Mikella, kind of the south and I think southwest uh, of Mikella, falling to the Ethiopians. As far as I know, the TPLF hasn't said anything about this, but uh, it does sound like they are advancing on Mikella, which would be a, a decisive blow. Now, the Ethiopians say what they're trying to do is seize uh, basically civilian infrastructure. They want to take over airports and major highways uh, in an effort to get humanitarian aid to parts of Tigray where, where it's badly needed. Um, I, I don't know that restarting the war uh, made that uh, make sense in, in light of uh, this uh, supposed desire to you know bring humanitarian aid into the region. But that's the story that they're going with. Uh, now, the other thing of note uh, is that there are supposed to be peace talks uh, beginning in South Africa on, I believe, Monday. Yes, October 24th. This, is an, uh, this came from the Ethiopian government on Thursday. Uh, they announced that they would participate in these talks led by the African Union, kind of mediated by the African Union. The TPLF sounds a little bit less committal to this. They've said that they will take part. They're happy to take part in an AU-led negotiating process. I don't think they 
uh, said anything about attending this specific meeting. There was supposed to be uh, a peace talks in South Africa a couple of weeks ago that got canceled, uh, mostly because it sounds like the TPLF and the the African Union were not on the same page in terms of who would be attending, in terms of you know, what roles everybody would be playing, what the talks would be about. So they hadn't worked out a lot of technical details uh, ahead of time. Uh, perhaps they've done that this time. I don't know, but it re- well, I guess we'll find out in, in a few days. So you don't seem especially hopeful? I, I feel like... Uh, the Ethiopian government's pretty committed to winning this conflict militarily at this point, and they're they're making progress. So I don't know that they have a tremendous uh, reason Interest in to, coming to the to table talk basically at yeah. this point. Yeah, it's you know you get more usually get more progress in situations like this when things are at a kind of stalemate, and they really aren't right now. So no, I'm not I'm not hugely optimistic. So, Derek, let's talk about the uh, China Party Congress and what was said there. Uh, yeah, so this week is the uh, once every five years uh, Party Congress, the uh, ruling Communist Party of China. Nothing huge seems to be happening here, uh, and and really continuity seems like the order of the day. Uh, the only change, the only major change, policy change that's expected to be adopted this week is one that will allow. Xi Jinping to serve for a third term as president, so basically changing things to keep them the same. Uh, the one thing I, I will note is the rhetoric uh, in some of the speeches so far from, from Xi uh, and some other remarks ha- has been very, uh, seems like, and I, you know, you, it would be better if a, I guess, more seasoned Chinese watcher or China watcher was, was offering this analysis, but it seems more security oriented than uh you know past party congress which have focused a lot on economic growth and development uh this seems to be more this time around this seems to be more about you know you're talking about taiwan you're talking about you know uh competition with the united states uh just elements that are uh more security focused and and that may reflect just a kind of concern over the uh, glorious new Cold War. It may reflect the fact that the Chinese economy has slowed down a fair bit. Real estate, the real estate sector is in uh, pretty deep trouble at this point. Um, COVID and the the lockdown policies have, uh, I think, probably saved a lot of lives, but they've also done a, a fair number on the Chinese economy as a sort of ancillary consequence. Um, so maybe it's just not, you know, they're just not focusing on uh, economic issues this time around uh, because of that. Or maybe it reflects uh, something of a shift in, in orientation toward, uh, you know, getting ahead of this rivalry with the United States. I can't say for sure. It seems like that to me. It seems like very much organized around U- very, uh, U.S. saber rattling, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly, uh, it's. I mean, it may be a bit of both. I shouldn't, you know, put it as an either-or type of thing. It may be yeah, Why both. not both? <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not both? Why not everything? Uh, so, Derek, Haiti, what's been going on? What has the U.S.'s response been? So, Haiti, as we've, we've talked about previously, you know, is going through uh, a, a good deal of unrest. A uh, group of gangs in, in Port-au-Prince have blockaded access to the city's main fuel terminal, which has left 
businesses and schools and hospitals, all kinds of you know uh, institutions struggling with for lack of access to food, uh, clean water, access to clean water is another issue. What's happened this week basically is the the UN Security Council has taken up the call from Ariel Henry, the Prime Minister of Haiti, to uh, intervene in some manner to help security forces kind of tamp down uh, on this violence. Uh, and the council took up this week a draft Security Council resolution written by the U.S. and Mexican governments that would have authorized or that would authorize uh, sanctions against uh, the leader of the G9 gang, who seems to be sort of the ringleader of this uh, unrest, uh, a guy named Jimmy Cherizier, and potentially authorize some kind of military, international military intervention, not a UN peacekeeping operation, but something done, uh, you know, by a third party or third parties in a coalition. That resolution, at least the sanctions resolution, was supposed to be voted on uh, on Wednesday, and they they wound up postponing that vote. It sounds like because of opposition from Russia. Uh, so they're going to go a little bit back to the drawing board or at least uh, kind of try to hash out their disagreements um, and at least get the Russians to a place where they will abstain, uh, if not you know, vote in favor of the, the resolution. Uh, it's unclear when or even if uh, that's going to happen. In the meantime, the U.S. and Canadian governments also earlier this week sent security equipment, armored vehicles, seems to have been, have been the main part of that package to the Haitian National Police. Uh, so that may be a first step towards some kind of intervention. And I think if the process at the Security Council completely falls apart, you'll see some effort probably led by the U.S. Uh, to go in and, and uh, you know, try to set things right because we have a great track record uh, of doing that when it comes to Haiti in particular. So, uh, you know, why not? You know, Haitians didn't get here by themselves. Uh, you know, they had a lot of help from the international community. The question today is how do they get out of this and what is the best formula to help them, which has become a very divisive topic. So it looks like there might actually be another, would you call it an invasion? What would you call it? I mean, I think it depends on your perspective. You could say they are invited in by the government. I don't know how much legitimacy this government has. I mean, Henri was never elected. He was appointed by uh, Jovenel Moise shortly before Moise was assassinated. Uh, so he's kind of, he may be the, the Gerald Ford in a sense of Haitian politics in, in that he was never really put on a ballot. Nobody actually chose to have him uh, running the country, but that's the position he finds himself in. So, I mean, from that perspective, at least, you know, he is, there's some legal legitimacy to his government and they're inviting this uh, intervention. You can, you can say it's legitimate or, you know, if you're not so inclined, I think you could easily uh, terminate an invasion, sure. Well, on that happy note, let's turn to our final subject, and that is the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the U.S. Yes, so uh, Joe Biden announced on Wednesday the release of uh, 15 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is the last tranche of a 180 million barrel block that he designated for release back in March. Uh, shortly after the start of the Ukraine war, when oil prices were, you know, going crazy, uh, he is doing this last release in the run-up to the midterm election because, of course, uh, as we've talked about, uh, OPEC Plus announced earlier this month a two million barrel per day production cut uh, that has sent oil prices ticking up a little bit, not as much as you might uh, have expected, but ticking up a little bit. 
uh, the announcement of this last tranche hitting the market and uh, of, uh, as Biden said, you know, the door is open to additional releases of oil from the SPR uh, is, I think, meant to calm the market. It's meant to bring prices down. Hopefully, having uh, for him from his perspective, hopefully having a, an effect on gasoline prices, which would in turn, you know, uh, affect people's decisions uh, when they go to the polls in a couple of weeks. Uh, Biden also announced uh, in this in this same these same remarks uh, on Wednesday uh, that the U.S. government will restock the SPR when the price of oil drops to around. $70 per barrel. He put it in, at the, in the $67 to $72 per barrel range, which is uh, an interesting attempt, I think, uh, also to boost production because it sends a signal uh, mostly to U.S. producers, to shale oil producers in particular, to go ahead and pump, uh, get, you know, get oil onto the market. Don't worry about the possibility uh, of a short-term supply glut because when it drops, if, if or when the price uh, drops to the $70 a barrel floor of sorts, it's sort of a soft floor, uh, the U.S. government is going to step in and buy a lot of that product and, and kind of boost the market. So it's meant to uh, encourage producers in the U.S. to, to bring more production onto the uh, onto the market, which would further bring prices down. But again, kind of, uh, you know, ideally uh, in this scenario, halting at around $70 per barrel. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, he's he's struggling here a little bit with gas prices and uh, not having a lot of control over the market doing, I think, what he, you know, whatever tools he has to try and manipulate the price on the global market. And, and again, hopefully from his perspective, gain some political benefit from that. Derek, your knowledge always impresses and astounds me. But of course, before we go, there's a little bit of housekeeping. People might have heard that Richard Haas resigned from the Council on Foreign Relations as president. So we here at American Prestige are proud to announce third Mike. <laughs> he's, he's coming in. We got He's him. coming in. So just look forward to that, everyone. I thought you were going to uh, say, we've, you know, yeah, I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that, but uh, that's great. That's great. He, he's so going to add a much needed perspective. Um, so everyone, just, just thank you so much and uh, look um, forward I, to that. I also would like to say on a serious note, actually, uh, Kendrick Liu, who writes for Foreign Exchanges and who is uh, one of your former students, uh, yeah, one had of the greats. First piece, for, first piece for Jacobin uh, on the Biden administration's national security strategy. Uh, came out, I think, on um, uh, uh, Sunday. Yeah, so just uh, yes, search Kendrick Lu L U uh, at Jacobin, and uh, Kendrick is a, a very smart guy. He's got one of uh, a, a number of rising voices in progressive foreign policy, uh, and Jacobin is, of course, one of the places that will actually publish heterodox stuff. So check out Jacobin, check out Kendrick, and thank you, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Bye, bye. bye.